Thank you. Well, um, this morning we conclude this series of sermons on the book of Acts, at least for this year. And uh, next weekend, as you may have already noticed, it's Christmas, and then the weekend after that is the start of the new year, and we will return to the Gospels. But I did so badly want to finish this particular series with this text, because it is enormously significant. Um, Luke understands its significance, and he treats it so. It is It's it's as significant as the day of Pentecost. It's as significant as Paul's conversion or Cornelius' conversion. In terms of significance, it's on par with any other event in Luke's book of Acts and second to none. So I guess the question is, why is this text so significant? Well, simply because it answers questions that are foundational questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the age of the Spirit. And those foundational questions are these. Firstly, what does it mean to be saved? And secondly, what is our relationship as Gentile Christians? What is our relationship to the law of Moses? Well, by now we're familiar with the context, aren't we? I mean, the gospel through these chapters has been going out and it's been accepted by very large numbers of Gentiles. And the gospel message is the message that Jesus of Nazareth is king of the Jews. Indeed, he's king of the world. And that by believing in him and trusting in him, we, we have forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit leading to eternal life. And Gentiles, well, that means non-Jews, people who who ain't descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who don't know the Jewish scriptures, nor their beliefs, nor their traditions, but they're being saved too. And in fact, these Gentile churches are growing and growing in number and in strength. And whilst this happens, suddenly a new teaching emerges. It, It emerges from Jerusalem. I mean, that's the home church. That's the headquarters. And it emerges from from Christians who know their Bible. It emerges from Christians who, like Paul, have been trained as Pharisees. They're, They're Pharisees by way of background, training, and occupation. What is this new teaching? What are they saying? Well, verse 1, it says, their teaching is this. Unless you Gentiles are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, it is not possible for you to be saved. And their position is restated in slightly different terms. Once a delegation led by Paul and Barnabas reaches Jerusalem, there they restate their message, verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so that's their message. It's a message about salvation. Um, If their concern is salvation, then the topic must be religion because because religions are about salvation, aren't they? Okay, so we must be in the area of religion here. So um, let's think about religions. Well, um, religions are concerned with salvation. Uh, According to Hinduism, according to Hinduism, we are disconnected from Brahman. That's our problem. 
and we're going to remain disconnected and we're going to fall through endless cycles of reincarnation until we achieve moksha. And moksha is being merged back into Brahman like a drop of rain falling into the ocean. And we'll lose our identity. I'll stop being me and you'll stop being you. But that's all right. We're part of something bigger, apparently. That's moksha. How do we achieve moksha? Well, you've got three choices. You can devote yourself either to the path of knowledge or the path of devotion or the um, uh, path of duties. And if you embrace one of these paths, then by much effort over many lifetimes, you will achieve salvation, which is moksha. According to Buddhism, we need to be saved from suffering. That's it. That's our problem. Our problem, according to Buddhism, is suffering. And boy, there's a lot of it out there, isn't there? We need to be saved from it. But if we embrace the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, then by much effort we'll be able to achieve salvation, which is called enlightenment. When you're enlightened, you'll realize that you don't actually really technically exist and neither does anybody else, and so nothing really matters and you'll feel a great deal better. According to Islam, our failure to submit puts us in danger of destruction on the day of judgment. Submission is the answer. That's what Islam means. It means submission. If we submit, devoting ourselves to the five pillars of Islam, if we do those five things, then with much effort, we will be able to attain paradise. Salvation. Okay, so we've had a quick whistle-stop tour of three religions. In fact, they're all basically the same. They all define religion. Religion all defines salvation in terms of, firstly, something we need to be saved from, be it reincarnation or suffering or hell or whatever it is. Secondly, we will be saved from this by means of what we must do now, be that the path of knowledge or the eightfold path or the five pillars, so that by much effort, We'll be saved from one thing for another thing which is much better, such as moksha, nirvana, enlightenment, or paradise. What does the Bible teach? Well, actually, the Bible has something to say about this. The Bible says, actually, we do need to be saved. What do we need to be saved from? Well, actually, the Bible says that we need to be saved from something called sin. We need to be saved from sin and its consequences. Sin is, is rejecting God and rejecting his authority so that we might live lives of self-rule, of moral autonomy, in independence from God, ignoring him. That's sin. And the consequences of sin, biblically speaking, are pretty awful. They are death, judgment, and eternal condemnation. And really, that's just three different ways of saying the same thing, that the consequence of sin is basically eternal, everlasting separation from God. And just in case you haven't picked it already, that's nasty. You want to avoid that. It's bad. Now, here's the thing. Jews, Christians, Pharisees, and apostles, we all agree on that stuff. 
we all agree that you need to be saved from sin. Salvation then, okay, if that's what we need to be saved from, what is salvation? Well, salvation, if, if sin is separation from God, then salvation plainly is, is, is reconciliation with God, being reunited with God, being friends again, belonging to God as his, as his person. And the Bible has a word for this, and the word is righteousness, being right with God. Now, Jews and Christians and Pharisees and apostles, we all agree about what I've just said. Salvation is belonging to God. Having been forgiven of any and all sin along the way, God declares us righteous. Justification, that's called. We belong to God. We're right with him. And in the light of what I've just said, let's now review the teaching of the Pharisees. Here is their proposal. Here is their teaching. Verse 1, unless you Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, it is not possible for you to be saved. Verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Clearly then, we're talking about religion, and in keeping with religion, they see salvation as some future event. In fact, here we go, let's, let's look at it in detail. A person will be saved from sin, death, and judgment by means of getting circumcised and keeping the whole law of Moses so that by much effort God will in the future, he promises apparently, to declare him or her righteous, that means this person belongs to me. That's the teaching of the Pharisee party. However, when the apostles and the elders in the church in Jerusalem review the facts, they see that actually this line of argument is quite wrong. In fact, they tear it to shreds. And they tear it to shreds in three ways. Firstly, they establish from Scripture that God in the past did indeed announce his intention to save Gentiles. In other words, God right from the beginning has announced his intention to declare Gentiles who bear his name righteous, belonging to me. And um, uh, in verse 15, they acknowledge that all of the prophets do this, all of them, but they choose to quote one, and they, cho and they chose Amos, quoting him in verses 16 to 18. But of course, they could have chosen any of them. They could have chosen Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses. And of course, they could have chosen Jonah. He got the point, but they chose Amos. God has always intended to extend righteousness beyond the boundaries of Hebrew ancestry. That's their first point. Their second point is that no one's ever kept the whole, the, whole, the whole law of Moses. No one's ever done it. Well, technically speaking, no one has ever done it except Jesus. Jesus did it. But this is what they're talking about in verse 10. If you'd like to read it with me, verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that, that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? In other words, if no one has ever been declared righteous by keeping the law of Moses, why now insist for Gentiles of all people that this is the path of salvation? That's their second line of argument. And their third line of argument is the most crucial of all. It's the most powerful. And with it, 
they will completely blow the pharisaical argument out of the water. Why talk about salvation as a future event when clearly God has already done it? Verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. I mean, like, duh. If somebody receives the Holy Spirit, that's God's living, real, manifest being inside of someone. I mean, you just can't get much more together again than that, can you? Already in their bodies. Plainly, they've been declared righteous. Plainly, they're no longer separated from God. Plainly, they have already been saved. Saved already. Blows the Pharisaical argument out of the water, doesn't it? Saved already. Verses 10 and 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. What did they do to get saved? Nothing. What did you do to get born? Nothing. Why were you born so beautiful? Why were you born at all? Because you had no say in it. No say in it at all. It is by grace that we have been saved. That's the scandal of Christianity as a religion. The scandal is it isn't a religion. It's an offer of a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've answered our first question. What does it mean to be saved? If, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you're already saved. You already belong to God. You have been made righteous. That's called, the Bible calls that justification by faith. The faith that you have in Jesus, the faith that, that, that Jesus is going to save you from your sin, that Jesus really does forgive you when you ask, that Jesus is going to save you from horrible things such as that math test on Monday or that horrible argument or death. Um, your, your faith in Jesus is, 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 is a gift from God and it shows that you're justified. You're friends with God. You've already been saved. Declared righteous. What did you do to deserve it? Nothing. It's the opposite of what we deserved. We deserved that eternal condemnation stuff. That's actually what we deserved. But that's why it's called salvation by grace. Okay, what I'd like you to do is to just stand up for a minute. And uh, turn to the person next to you and talk about something really good that happened in the last week.
Okay, if you'd like to sit down again. <clears throat> Thank you. Before the interval, we were talking about what it means to be saved. And we said that we are saved by grace, justified by faith. And that, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. We're now ready to consider our second question, which is, what is our relationship then to the law of Moses? Well, actually, this is not a question that is directly answered by the apostles in this text. However, an answer can be built if we attend carefully to their words, understanding their assumptions. So let's listen again to what the apostles put in their letter, verses 28 and 29. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. You, you, you will do well to avoid these things. There isn't the vaguest hint that these things are salvation issues. That question has been dealt with. We've answered it. This is not about salvation any longer, but about behavioral things that need our attention. These, this is about life together. So here are some behavioral guidelines. As the apostles say, mm, some burdens are worth imposing, and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, for your welfare, we are actually imposing upon four burdens on you, if we may, and they're very broad. The first is that we should abstain or separate ourselves or distance ourselves literally from idolatrous things. The NIV has translated this into food sacrificed to idols because that is indeed what the Gentile recipients of this letter would have understood the apostles to be talking about. They're surrounded by pagan temples that regularly sacrifice animals in the name of their god or goddess, and you can buy the meat. In fact, you might be given it free. You might be invited to the barbecue. Don't eat it, was the apostles' advice. Why was this important back then? Well, actually, Paul explains it at length in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. He takes three chapters to explain it. But in a nutshell, if I may, basically, when we trust Jesus to save us, we must show the world that we're done with all the other things that the people around us trust in in order to save them. Our God was and is and always will be a jealous God, protective of the love that belongs exclusively to him. It is spiritually dangerous to play in the enemy's camp. Therefore, when we become a Christian, we're just done completely with, with anything that smacks of trusting in something else to save us spiritually. Thereafter, there are two words that are perhaps confusing. The first word is blood, and the second word is choked. With respect to blood, we are possibly being told we must not eat blood, such as in black pudding 
Anyone here eating black pudding? Well, the eating of blood, I've never eaten black pudding. It sounds revolting. <clears throat> the eating of blood was indeed forbidden in the law of Moses. And that seems to fit if we translate the word choked as the meat of strangled animals. Um, because that also was something forbidden in the law of Moses. Now, the word translated blood could also be translated bloodshed. And it could be that the apostles basically are imposing a code of conduct rule. Don't kill each other. It might seem necessary for churches, but it seems unlikely that the Gentiles couldn't have figured this one out for themselves. More likely, the apostles are asking the Gentile Christians to abstain from eating blood and the meat of strangled animals, even though Jesus declared all foods to be clean, they nevertheless are asking them to abstain from these things in order to make life easier for everyone in congregations where there were large numbers of Christians from Jewish background and large numbers of Christians from Gentile backgrounds. It's just going to make life together easier. By the way, if you have eaten black pudding, don't worry. Jesus declared all foods clean. But in this first century context, for the sake of life together, in order not to offend anybody's conscience, we're going to impose this little burden. Please don't eat blood or the meat of strangled animals. The burden really is this. Be mindful of other people's sensibilities and consciences. And Paul unpacks this in Romans chapters 14 and 15. The message is, in a nutshell, that loving each other means sometimes not living quite as freely as we know we can in order not to tempt someone into, into doing something that for them would be sin if they did it because they think it's wrong. So, for example, although as a Christian I have the freedom to go and buy a lottery ticket, I won't. Just in case, in doing so, that gives someone else the temptation. They think it's wrong, they think it's bad, and they see me doing it, and they think, well, if Stephen can do it, I'll do it. But for them, it's still a sin, and they're tempted into sin by my freedom. So I, I won't buy a lottery ticket just in case I encourage somebody to do something which they think is sin. And in the same way, from, the time, from time to time, I will also relinquish and lay down my right to drink alcohol or to dance or to air my views on evolution or Harry Potter films, if, in doing so, I might scandalize other Christians and cause them to sin. I just won't tell people what I think about those things if, if it's going to worry them. The last word is the Greek word pornea. Um, from pornea, we get the English word pornography. Um, this Greek word means literally unseemliness. And it is a vague word, accurately translated in the NIV by the equally vague English phrase, sexual immorality. The apostles and the elders make absolutely no attempt to define sexual immorality. They are well aware that Christians from both Jewish backgrounds and Christians from Gentile backgrounds could actually have wildly different understandings of that word and what is and isn't acceptable. Now, they are not, and we must be clear about this, 
they are not leaving it up to the Gentile converts to work it out for themselves. They're not doing that. No, plainly, they are sending Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas. And as we see in the text, the letters didn't answer every question. These four men spent considerable time there discipling in Antioch after giving them the letter, preaching and teaching the word of the Lord, telling them all about Jesus and teaching them what Jesus taught his disciples. But here it is. I'm going to tell you. Here it is. Here's the scale of the problem when it comes to sexual immorality. The scale and the shape of the task that these four men would have faced looks something like this. Here's their task. Now, in the Old Testament, God reveals a clear consistent and coherent picture of marriage and human sexuality. On the basis of that picture, it's unpacked and explained through various texts in the Old Testament. What is explained is what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and sometimes what is transitorily acceptable. There are lots of things that are acceptable. Some things are completely and never acceptable, such as rape and adultery. Some things go against the grain. But God was, in context, willing to tolerate them for a season. And two obvious ones are polygamy and divorce. But what we see is that actually, whether we like this or not, God actually has his own and very definite ideas about human sexuality. And the pastoral task, which is a huge one, is to get people to acknowledge that, to see that, and to bring their lives in line with that. Because, you see, we all have, we all come to this with our own ideas as to what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And you know what? Everybody disagrees with God on this. It's because we're all sinners. I disagree with God on this, only I just don't know where I disagree. I hope I'm mostly right, and if God shows me that I'm wrong, then I have to repent until I do agree with him. But that's the shape of the pastoral task. We, we, when it comes to human sexuality, we learn our values. We, our consciences are, are shaped and informed by the culture around us, by the example of our parents, by the behavior of our friends, by our church culture. And generally, all of these things happen long before, typically, we actually bring the Bible to bear on the subject. And so, obviously, there are two types of problems, aren't there? There are always going to be two types of problems, false positives and false negatives. The first problem is that when we, as humans, think something is absolutely fine and God couldn't possibly have a problem with it because God moves with the times, blah, 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 and we just can't believe or register or see that actually, as far as God is concerned, it is not fine. But actually, if we keep, if we keep living an unrepentant life with respect to that, pursuing our own ideas and contradicting God, we're going to harm ourselves and we're going to harm others. The second problem is the same, just the opposite. That the second problem is that when we as humans think something is wrong and unacceptable, when in actual fact the Bible doesn't say so. And there are dozens of examples of that. This too is very harmful. If our church culture says such and such a thing is wrong, 
it's just going to be a plain miracle for somebody to see that actually, as far as the Bible is concerned, it doesn't say it's wrong. The, the, the confirmation of the human will to the divine will on matters of human sexuality so that they match up right is one of the toughest pastoral problems of all. Luckily, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, they get this job. Lucky them. To see, if you're interested in what Paul may have taught, then you can read something probably very similar for yourself in 1 Corinthians chapters 5, 6, and 7. Okay, so I think that we can begin to answer our second question with some confidence. What, what is the nature of our relationship with the law of Moses as Gentile Christians? Well, the law of Moses was given to the nation of Israel as Israel camped in the shadow of Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula roughly 3,500 years ago. The law of Moses was one expression of God's perfect moral will and character. But the context was God preparing a nation to be his nation in the ancient Near East. For that reason, it had, I mean, in addition to the Ten Commandments and the Shema and other world-changing, life-changing ideas, thoughts, statutes, regulations, and commandments, it had, amongst all this extraordinary stuff, it had stuff like this. It said things like, you will not wear items of clothing made up of two types of thread. You will not eat certain types of animals. You will not allow yourself to be tattooed in remembrance of the dead. You will uh, not cut the hair on the sides of your head. Well, these rules made sense in context. Israel surrounded by pagan nations for which these things actually had profound spiritual meaning. But our context is different. Gentile Christians living alive by the Spirit, scattered amongst the world's nations, our context is very different. Same God, same perfect moral character and will, different context. Therefore, in fact, different expressions of true Christian spirituality. To quote Paul, we're not bound by the law. We're already saved. Does this mean we nullify the law? By no means. We uphold the law. We attend to it as an expression of God's character and will, and by thinking about it and praying about it in our context, keeping in step with the Spirit and attending to the teaching of the apostles kept for us in the New Testament, we're going to learn more and more and more about how to live as God's saved people. And basically, if we love God and love each other, and if we love our neighbors, We'll be doing well. That's our second question answered. One final thing needs to be said, and it does need to be said. I have shown this morning that really, it actually was an easy thing for the apostles to see straight through the Pharisees' message and to tear it to shreds. It was an easy thing for them to do. But if it was so easy... Why did this message cause so much consternation? Why were so many hearts troubled? 
Why were there arguments and disputes and deputations and delegations and travel and councils and speeches and letters and extended stays for teaching and preaching and discipling? Why this much effort over a question that theologically is simple to resolve? Well, part of the answer, to be sure, part of the answer is that we're watching the Christian church at a key juncture. We're watching a church comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers come to grips with the fact that what God has done through Jesus Christ is infinitely more important than what God did through Moses. And that would have been an extremely difficult idea to accept if you were a a Jewish believer. And in fact, it would have been impossible for you to accept as a Jewish believer, had that not been what Jesus had said, had that not been what all the apostles had said, had that not been what even Moses had said. The true salvation event, the eternal salvation event, is the cross. The exodus out of Egypt, that was just a dress rehearsal. The cross is the main event. That's part of the answer. The rest of the answer is more important. And that answer is this. Religion is desperately tempting. It is a terrible temptation which we must constantly guard ourselves against. The Pharisees were appealing to the insecurity that we all feel from time to time. How do you know you're really saved? How do you know you're really going to heaven? Just get circumcised. Then, I'm sure, I'll make sure by just getting circumcised. But that's a terrible shift. Stop trusting God and what he says and what he's done and start trusting yourself and what you've done is the message. That's the temptation, and it's a big temptation. And at the very heart of this is is something, our inability to trust God, what he says and what he's done, that's, that's that's, that's what this temptation rests on. And what do we call that? There's a word for that in the Bible, and the word for that in the Bible is sin. And I face this temptation in various forms at various times. The temptation to trust in something that we ourselves can get a grip on in order to know that we're saved. And this temptation arises afresh in every church, in every generation, and in every Christian. It must be recognized and squashed. Because this is the gospel. It is done. We have already been saved. A past event through the present and continuing reality of faith in Jesus Christ. And this not of ourselves, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit for a now and future good works prepared in advance for us to do. Let us therefore continue in the grace of God. Peace be with you.